Hi, this is Daniel James, and this is the podcast of Triple R's The Mission, a weekly radio show exploring the issues that impact the lives of Aboriginal people and those at the wrong end of social justice in this country. The Mission is broadcast live on Triple R each Tuesday evening. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. Good evening and welcome to episode 0000215 of The Mission. My name is Daniel James, going to be your host through the wait this evening, broadcasting to you from Triple R World Headquarters at the end of the 96th line, which of course is on the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. And I pay my respects to their elders past and present, to any mob that are out there listening at the moment or to anyone else that is listening either here in this beautiful city of ours or right across the country through the National Indigenous Radio Service Network. Welcome. Thank you for tuning in. Now, tonight on the show, Ian Ham, friend of the show, Yorta Yorta man, survivor of the Stolen Generations and board member of the Healing Foundation, an organisation which assists members of the Stolen Generations with a whole range of issues will be in to talk to us about, well, some of the scuttlebutt that's been going around the last past week, which I'm about to touch upon. So stick around. He will be with us in uh, maybe 10 minutes or so. But in relation to, and I'm sorry I have to keep talking about the referendum, but it would be remiss of me not to, last week was probably the tawdriest week of the referendum campaign so far. Uh, As we touched upon last week, there were the underhanded tactics of the no campaign were revealed with their call centres targeting so-called soft voters, filling them with information designed to alarm them, information not actually related to the question that it's being put at the referendum itself. Um, but, you know, a tactic that has been used well in places like England during the Brexit campaign and less successfully in America under the regime of that orange president that uh, is running again. We also had uh, Jacinda Price at the National Press Club. On the same day, Michael Long finished his long walk into Canberra, coming out and saying that colonisation had been a good thing for Aboriginal people and that there are no ongoing impacts on First Nations people as a result of colonisation. So we might unpack that a little bit with uh, Ian when he comes into the studio. I see him arriving through the door now, so uh, I know I'm not going to be stood up. Ian would never do that, by the way. Um, Of course, the National Press Club address was designed purely to take any coverage away from Michael Long arriving in Canberra and being greeted by the Prime Minister. So that seemed to work. Most of the coverage had to be around the outrage of those comments by Senator Price. And uh, less than two weeks from uh, announcing that uh, Peter Dutton would hold a second referendum, he's walked back on that promise, exposing it as more, no more than an ill-conceived thought bubble, again, designed to take oxygen from the debate and get people talking about anything other than the referendum that is being put forward on October 14. 
And on Sunday, in an attempt to distract from the yes rallies held all over the country, Warren Mundine stated that the process towards a treaty would start once the referendum is defeated. A declaration he made seemingly without authority and definitely without consensus that seems to have put a bit of a divide within the Conservative No campaign, and we'll see what happens with that. But whatever happens to that, it, uh, it probably won't be of much consequence. So with all this flimflammery floating about, what does it all mean? Well, according to today's essential poll in The Guardian, a slim majority of Australians attend to vote no in the referendum in October. After two weeks of what The Guardian is calling partisan contention, the latest poll of 1,135 respondents has no voters in the majority, 51% for the first time in this particular survey, with 41% to vote yes and 9% still on the fence. So in short, support for the yes campaign continues to slide and the path toward victory for that campaign is becoming narrower and narrower with only 25 days to go. We'll see whether all of the energy and the, um, the hope and the goodwill that came out of the uh, marches on the weekend across the country will turn into, I guess, polling numbers with the polls that will continue to come out. But I just want to remind everyone that um, the polls have been correct since about 2019, once it was, uh, once Scott Morrison had got in unexpectedly and the polls showed that he wasn't going to get in, pollsters around the country have refined their methodology and since then they've pretty much accurately predicted every result at both a state, uh, territory and federal level since then. So don't be fooled by the numbers of people that are hitting the streets and supporting this campaign um, keep your eye on the polls. It is my belief that the polls will tighten up as we get closer to uh, referendum day, but we will see. One of the things with this referendum is that even though the Conservative No campaign is trying its darndest to make it a, uh, a divided campaign, unlike a federal election, there aren't rusted-on supporters one way or the other when it comes to the question that is putting being put forth. And so there is still a path towards victory for the Yes campaign because there are still many undecideds and there will be a percentage of people who are say, are voting what they call a soft no that still may be convinced before polling day. They need to do that without losing any of the people that are already supporting the Yes campaign. So those so-called soft yes, yeses cannot go to the uh, no campaign because uh, the, the, the margins are just too one-sided at this point, that any leakage of support from the Yes campaign will result in a certain defeat. So that's something to think about as we uh, move forward to the 14th of October. Triple R. To tonight's one and only guest... Okay, so last week there were claims made by No Advocate and Shadow Minister for Indigenous Australians, Jacinta Price, that suggested colonisation was a good thing for First Nations people and there are no ongoing negative impacts as a result of it. It comes at the same time as former Prime Minister Tony Abbott described Indigenous disadvantage 
as being the result um, that the idea of Indigenous disadvantage being the result of intergenerational trauma arising from British colonisation is nothing more than a neo-Marxist fiction. So it seems as a result of the voice debate, some far-right conservatives are using it as a platform to promote the idea that the pain and suffering inflicted on First Nations people hasn't had any negative impacts and it's all just something that you should get over. Everyone has a personal responsibility to pull themselves up by their bootstraps and tally-ho, jolly good and all that. Well, I thought it would be good to speak to someone who might have a different perspective from those far-right conservatives on this and other matters. Uh, and of course, I'm speaking of a friend of the show, Ian Ham. Ian is a Yorta Yorta man, a member of the Stolen Generations and a board member of many organisations, but pertinent to this particular discussion, he's a board member of the Healing Foundation, an organisation which assists members of the Stolen Generation in a range of ways, including help with the grief and trauma inflicted upon them by the state and inflicted upon their families also. Ian, welcome back to the mission. Thanks, Daniel. Great to be here. You must have been relieved to uh, discover that uh, the impacts of colonisation were over. Oh, yes. Look, that brought me great relief. It made me feel a whole bunch better than that. Just, it just pre- cleared that up for me. You know, <laughs> there I was for nearly 60 years thinking, oh, my God, you know, that's what my life has been. But certainly she d- that's what I've been doing wrong. Thank you, Jacinta. Hmm. I thought, seriously, I thought the history of all this had been settled. There have been so many royal commissions into this, this particularly the, the bringing them home report that came from a royal commission. The 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 pinnacle mm. of colonial investigative powers into our society with mm. vast powers to look into these matters in depth. Um, but apparently, the it's not settled. We are finding ourselves in a position where we have to now talk about this in a contested way. What do you make of it all? Uh, look, I think, <clears throat> excuse me, Daniel, I think there'll always be people who are on what you would call on the fringes, who will always have the opposite and opposing view to what is accepted fact. It's a bit like, you know, the Flat Earth Society. There are those who believe the Earth is still flat. There are those who believe climate change isn't happening, isn't real. There are those who are advocating that uh, colonialism was a good thing. Um, and oddly enough, some of those people, as has been shown in this case, happen to be some of those people who were who were the uh, uh, the colonised as opposed to the coloniser. So in that case, uh, I mean, in that that um, circumstance, I do wonder about. Um, I do wonder about the motivations of people for putting that across. I mean, really, it's rejecting when you think about it. We have had the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody. We've had the Bringing Them Home report. We've had numerous other inquiries and and, uh, investigations and evidence and research uh, in this country, in addition to other countries who've had the same experience Australia has, at which the evidence is beyond refute that has shows that those people who have uh, come off second from colonisation have have traumas which go over generations. Uh, for somebody to say and refute that, refute that, but particularly with what she said, we have running water. <laughs> we have uh, what was the other thing she said? There was something equally is that that actually betrays to me somebody of not doesn't have a great capacity to look beyond that 
which is not immediately in front of them. Mm. The the old, if I can't see it, therefore it doesn't exist. Um, but that's kind of like a bit of a racehorse, why they put blinkers on a racehorse. I don't know if you know why they do that, but they do that so that the horse can't see anything other than what is directly in front of it, and so it runs at that. That's why some horses have blinkers. That would appear to me to be something which is, well, you know, what am I saying? Jacinta's a bit like a racehorse. She, her, her inability to cognitively conceive or her inability to conceive anything which is not immediately in front of her or as she immediately perceives it doesn't exist. That's, that's where I think this is at. Is the fact that we have, I guess, people like uh, Jacinta and Warren, and there are, there are others, they're in the minority, but mm. there are others within um, the Aboriginal community or communities across Australia, the fact that we have people that are sort of denying that plain history of ours that um, we, the vast majority of us uh, uh, have either experienced or um, are at least agreed upon. Mm. Is that a result of colonisation itself? <laughs> that gets to the heart of the motivations of people. It was interesting. I saw Warren on the ABC on uh, Sunday on Insiders. Uh, he provided compelling arguments for the yes case, except he was a no person, yeah. which I found extraordinary. Uh, um I think uh, I think that has kind of backfired on him a little bit well, now. I he, think that the Senate seat that he was almost seemingly promised is is up for uh, grabs pro- now. Probably not as as sure as it was. I think that that's actually a real thing for him. I think um, I think is this a direct result? Are them pursuing their their objectives? No. In in one sense, Daniel, to answer that a different way. They are entitled to their opinion. Yep. They are entitled to their view. I do not agree with it. I think they're manifestly wrong but I will defend their right to have it. But the important thing to note is that they are very much a minority. They are very much uh, an elite group on the right uh, who have decided that they do not want ordinary Aboriginal people to be able to speak. One of the things that I think if the voice gets up, what it would do, it would make people who are leaders or appointed leaders or self-appointed leaders or get the badge leader, it's interesting how that gets tossed around, by the way, um, suddenly they... Me, people like me, I get called a leader and I'm not, we become far less relevant. And that's a good thing. Yeah. Because this is the voice of the people being able to say, here's where we should go, here's what we should do. So I think in that regard, there is a modicum, more than a modicum, there is a very big ladle full of self-interest about ensuring there isn't an alternative to, in the case of those who are objecting to the voice, to, there isn't an alternative to them being seen to be speaking what they regard as the truth. Let's uh, let's let's get real now. Um, I mean, we haven't really spoken about your story at length mm. on this show. We've we've touched upon it um, from mm. time to time, but I thought you know probably now is the perfect time to talk about your experience as being a member of the um, Stolen Generations and what that has meant for you. Can you just give us you know? however you want to cover it, uh, an overview or whatever of um, your story when it comes to the Stolen Generations. Sure. Yeah, look, I was born in, in, in June of 1964 and separated from my family, my mother, in July of 1964, about a week after I was born. Um, uh, I was adopted three months later uh, by a non-Aboriginal couple and grew up in Yarrawonga, which is on the Victoria-New South border. Uh, I was... Uh, at that time, I was adopted, I was the entire Aboriginal population of Yarrawonga. So out of 3,200 people, I was it. 
and then mum and dad, or my adopted mum and dad, mum and dad adopted uh, two other girls subsequent to that. So uh, by 1968, I was one-third of the Aboriginal population and the entire male population of Yarrawonga out of 3,200 people. Um, uh, so I suppose... After I suppose, well, not I suppose. So I grew up in an environment where I didn't have contact with Aboriginal people. The what you saw of being Aboriginal, and this is the sixties and the seventies, right? This mm. is when being black wasn't good. When when society looked at Aboriginal people in an entirely negative way, notwithstanding the sixty seven referendum, but by and large, your average Australian uh, didn't think a lot of Aboriginal people. In fact, the only ones who got good press were those who were good at sport. Yvonne Goolagong, our own Sid Jackson, for example. Lionel Rose. Lionel Rose, Polly Farmer. There's plenty of good yeah. black, black athletes back in the day, yeah. as there still is. Yeah, but they were the only ones people spoke positively about, and perhaps the great Sir Douglas Nichols, of course, as well. But other than that, not a lot happening there. So I grew up in a town where the only thing I saw about being Aboriginal was what I saw on television and what other people said. And, and the bulk of people in Yarrawonga didn't have contact with Aboriginal people because in northeast Victoria there really weren't any except Shepparton. You get yes. to Shep, once you start heading towards uh, towards Aubrey, no Aboriginal communities. And I was right in the middle of that. So uh, you grow up wondering who you are, where you're from. Uh, and then I started the journey when I was 18. After I finished school, I went to Bendigo and started the journey of trying to find who I am, where I'm from. Where do you even start with a with a journey like that? Yeah, well, because I went to I got uh, um, onto or got into a course at Bendigo for Aboriginal teachers, uh, Aboriginal teachers aides, and um, it was the first time I actually mixed with other Aboriginal people, to be honest. Yep. Uh, except in Shep, a couple of times there'd been a couple of things, and there was one I'll never forget because one of the people I'd met earlier on turned out to be my auntie, Auntie Rhonda. Right. I didn't know that at the time. Yeah. Um, uh, so so I, I go to Bendigo and within the first week uh, somebody had asked me, uh, what do you know about yourself? Do you know anything? And I haven't heard the name before, Ham as an Aboriginal, you know, in the Aboriginal community before. What's the story? And I said, oh, I'm adopted. Um, do you know anything about yourself? Well, uh, I knew what I thought were two Christian names, Andrew James, and I knew, apart from being Aboriginal, but there was apparently some Indian blood in me as well. Mm-hmm. The person I told looked at me and goes, ah, right, yeah, I, know. I think I know who you are. I'll get back to you. Yeah. It was that. And, yeah. and later, as I found out, that was like a big neon light sign. Your name's James and you got some a- Aboriginal blood and you're about, of course I know who you are. Yeah. Uh, so when, uh, when I was contacted by uh, ACCA um, about six months later, Elaine came up to Bendigo and told me my story. Uh, I was sitting in the student union of Bendigo College and uh, her and I sat down for, I don't know, it felt like three years, but it was like, I don't know, two hours or something. And she took me through uh, who I was and where I was from. And so when you come to that realisation, like, who you are, you're, you're, you're always Anne Ham, but you're, you're also Ian James, hmm. Andrew James. Yeah. Um, that's a lot of people that you have to reconnect with. Yeah. And for some people, that can take the course of a lifetime. Um, how rewarding slash arduous was, was that process for you? It was in the beginning, even when Elaine was talking to me, there were, there, were, there were a couple of things that stood out from that. But the first one was that 
because um, like I grew up, I never knew where I was from. No idea. Yep. And so I wondered, am I from Alice Springs? Am I from the Kimberley? Perhaps Cape York? Something. Not so know. lucky. Exactly. Well, yeah, you know. Shepparton. Shepparton. <laughs> <laughs> my, my initial reaction was, I'm from what? <laughs> I'm from where? Shep? Oh, it's a bit... I remember. Oh, we love Shepparton. Shepparton's great. great place. The Solar love City, Shep. absolutely, it's fantastic. Yep. Solar City, just up from Fruit Salad City. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. perfect place. KFCs, McDonald's there, oh. and great drive-through, and a JB Hi-Fi. So yep. if I want to get out of town and experience the delights, Shepparton's only two hours. Get up to here. the Great Goulburn Valley. It's fantastic. Yep. SPC, fill up your boot with uh, wholesale uh, stuff from SPC Factory. It's fantastic. We, we, anyway. We've digressed. Anyway. When I found out I was from Shep, there was that there was that moment of deflation, which I quickly corrected because I love Shepparton. Yes. But then then it came to me, hang on, I've been to Shep a lot in my life from when I was little. You know, we used to go shopping in the big town from Yarrawonga. We'd go to Wang or we'd go to Shep, right? Yep. And I remember thinking, did I pass people in the street who might be my family? Undoubtedly. Did I? Did I? Have I seen? And Elaine told me I had two brothers and two sisters. Did I see my brothers and sisters and not know? That was the first thing. And then the second thing was about my mother, which was um, because that's always the question. You it's know. a big one. And she didn't, she didn't talk about it until I asked. And that was about three quarters of an hour. And I eventually asked her, what about, what about my mother? And she said, your mother died in 1966 mm-hmm. when you would have been two and a half years old. Um, which kind of left for me uh, uh, still empty. The, the centre of everything That's was That's a empty. gaping wound, isn't it? Yeah. Everything was – it's a bit like a black hole at the centre of a galaxy. Like when she was talking, all these stars were lighting up, but there's now a black hole that was still always there and is still there. Um, all I have of my mother is a few photos. Mm-hmm. So so that that then started the journey, if you like, of of – reconnecting with family as you say that is an enormously it's a difficult thing because you you and because i was the only one who was separated right yep uh, substantially separated and you you turn up after 20 plus years and it's trying to create relationships with people who you didn't grow up with particularly and, those who are close family that's really hard and i can imagine because we're you know, as as a collective, a you know impoverished part of the community, mm. that having someone turn up after twenty years and say, you know, hello, I'm your brother, or I'm your first cousin, mm. or there must be in some instances a degree of, what do you want? You know, it, it, probably a degree of, well, certainly a degree of who are you? Yeah, you know, uh, uh, how do you fit in here? That kind of stuff, um, because. Somebody coming into family is always an outsider coming in. Yes, it doesn't matter how how that relationship works, and and, and there's always that. And it takes. It's not only about you as the person coming back. It's also as equally about them as as the family you're going to. Mm. My brothers and sisters had four, two brothers, two sisters, and suddenly there's a there's another one. There's five of us. Yeah, that's difficult. And then for uncles and aunties. Uh, and other cousins, there's this, there's this cousin we didn't know about. Yeah, um, that that took years, uh, has taken years. Um, yeah, 
Yeah, and you know, thankfully, you're you're, you're part of a community that, mm. because of the trauma and the adversity that so many of us have gone through, there is also an amazing generosity of spirit and open heartedness when it comes to acknowledging that these things happen and then not rectifying them, but just in, embracing the person for who they are now mm. and, and not looking at the past. Uh, that's something that, um, uh, despite all the trauma, must have been tremendously rewarding. The whole thing is very complicated. Yeah. But that element of what, it what makes very it, rewarding. What makes it... Uh, what makes... What makes it an experience that is hard to describe is that, uh, first and foremost, my family did embrace me. That is, yes. That, that was a wonderful thing, particularly my, my brothers and sisters, um, but the wider family as well. So I'm very much part of that family. Um, in terms of the community embracing people and people coming back, I, this is going to sound – it doesn't matter how I say this, it comes out in a perverse kind of way. One of the things about so many children being removed is that is that you were never alone as a stolen child. Yes. I've, I've always known other... Well, you know, when I started mixing with the community, there were others like me yep. who'd been adopted, who'd been removed, who'd be separated. And when people started to come back to the community and find their way, there just wasn't a small group. There was a large group at different times and in different waves and such, which meant... Uh, the community could cope with it because in one sense it wasn't a unique circumstance that was yes. so weird. It was actually a common thing. And, I mean, now we know every Aboriginal family has been touched by the taking of children. Yes. Directly or it's been in our broader families or we know so many other people that it happened. So in that sense uh, that it it was such a bad thing meant that when people come back, we had the capacity to cope with it because it was shared across the whole community. What I don't understand about the what I call the get over it crowd is they 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 assume by you know putting what I, that's a sledge as far as I'm concerned, right? Yeah. They assume that people don't spend their time trying to get over it, and sometimes people spend their entire life trying to get over it. People are not trying to to get over it. People are doing their best to get over it. But in so many instances, in so many cases, people never get over it. Hmm. That, and that that's actually something. So, so those people who say, oh, just get over it, that goes to where I think Jacinta Price is a lot yes. of the time, her inability to conceive anything out of what she knows that is in front of her that she can touch and see. She has an inability to do that. So it's easy to say, get over it. The other bit, though, uh, about when you, you don't – you never get over this. No. I, I say I say you don't get over it, you get used to it. Um, people – the best a lot of people can do is try and cope with it. You know, it's an achievement for them to get out of bed because it means they got – it's an achievement for them to get be able to go to bed at night because it means they got through the day before. Yeah. They got through the day. Uh and then they know there's a day ahead. They get out of bed and they aim for one thing. That is to get to the, through the day to be able to go to bed again. They mean, I've got through another day. That's a terrible way for people to live their lives. But that's what's happened to them. And that's how they deal with, that's how they cope with it. That's how they get used to it. 
Thank you so much for sharing um, that story. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Now, tell us about the Healing Foundation. Why was it established and what does it do? Yeah, okay. So the Healing Foundation was established after the apology, actually. Uh, It was set up uh, because the apology was seen quite rightly as the beginning rather than an end. And once we had moved past the argument whether the stolen generations existed or not, whether the the children were taken, uh, by Kevin Rudd doing that, he just put it to rest. Yes, there were a few uh, uh, people hanging out in the are they real camp, but they're always going to be hanging out on bunches of stuff. But once we moved past that, the, the focus then went on, so how do we support the stolen children deal with the issues of being taken? We've got the report, bring them home report, which says that there's there's other things which indicate this has had a huge effect. And so the Healing Foundation was one of the responses to that, how do we address the issues. So the Healing Foundation was primarily established to look at how do you how do you support stolen generations people into a place of healing? How do we give um, how do we give them the opportunity to hopefully help them on their journey with community, more importantly, their journey with themselves um, around finding, to be brutally honest, a place of peace that yep. enables people to get through the day. So the Healing Foundation, that's the, the underpinning role of it, the underpinning philosophy, although increasingly we are expanding into other things that, um, that need healing within the Aboriginal community as well. We're beginning, I mean, this sounds like a, a strange sort of question, but do you reckon there'll be people walking through the doors of the Healing Foundation as a result of this referendum? Uh, that is not a strange question. That has already been put to us and we're already planning about how we might be able to support the Aboriginal people, Aboriginal community deal with the fallout of this referendum. Well, let's talk about it for a sec. Uh, I knew it was going to be, um, you know, it's going to be a lot of tension. I knew that, that it was going to be uh, contested as soon as uh, David Littleproud and Peter Dutton came out and uh, said that they were supporting the, the voice. Uh, but I... Never knew it was going to be this bad. Uh, what what have you made of the level of debate in this country, and what does it say about this country? Ah, oh, that's a real. They're two interesting questions. The level of and I put debate in inverted commas. Uh, I I have to say I've been surprised. I've been disappointed because I won't actually say it's debate. It's more the level of opportunistic political polarisation. Um, yeah. Interestingly, with David Littleproud or the Nationals coming out against it, I wonder if they were basically cajoled into it by Jacinta Price. Um, and with Peter Dutton, he announced, on the, the, he announced on a Wednesday that they weren't going to support it. The previous Saturday, Saturday the 1st of April, the Liberal Party lost a seat in a by-election to a sitting government. So an opposition lost a seat uh, in a by-election to a sitting government. That hadn't happened for 103 years. Uh, The next day on Sunday, he was basically torn another one on um, insiders by David Spears, asking the questions, where is this party at? Are you the right person to take that? Haven't you lurched the right? And the rev- the voters of what should be a safe seat for you guys have deserted you. How much long do you think you can hang on? He needed a circuit breaker and a big one 
Tuesday, he calls a uh, meeting of the Parliamentary Party in Canberra. Thursday, uh, Wednesday, he comes out and says, um, we are not supporting The Voice. Personally, and I don't know Peter Dutton from a bar of soap, but my view of he probably doesn't care one way or the other personally, but he needed something to take the take the eyes of Australia off the off losing a seat for the first time in 103 years as an opposition to a government in a by-election. And once again, the Aborigines have provided. There's no votes in blackfellas, but there's an awful lot of uh, opportunity for negativity around us, and he just swept it up. Thursday, Julian Lesser resigns. Friday... Him and Jacinta Price are in Alice Springs. He's calling for royal commissions. She's being outraged. Saturday, that's what was on the front of the paper. Yep. This is a week later after the biggest flogging an opposition had got in 100 years, which should have been the story still, and it was not. And part of the strategy, of course, is to shore up the LNP base in Queensland. Queensland mm. has been a, a stronghold and remains a stronghold. And that, that base needed firming up after the last election, and that includes his seat. Of course, mm. he holds the seat by, I think it's a margin of 2.3% or something like Wasn't that. Wasn't a lot. Wasn't a lot. So that's part of the uh, political strategy as well. But as a result of that, the, 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 the amount of vitriol, racism, bigotry aimed at First Nations people primarily and anyone that purports to support them when it comes to this question, I don't think I've ever seen anything like it in my lifetime as so open mm. and um, above the parapet than it is now. Well, well it really goes to, to the, how you view a referendum, right? Is it about a whole bunch of weeds of, of Uluru statements and invitations and what if people run off to the High Court and blah, blah? Or is it about more fundamental core issues? The referendums of this nature are those which ask us, who are we really as a people? What do we fundamentally stand for? What are our core... What is at the core of who we are? To be brutally honest, how much of our own bulldust do we buy? Yeah. That's what these referendums <clears throat> do. These, Especially these that, ones that, which, that, that fair go narrative that we've been it, sold for exactly. all these years. Fair go and mateship and all that. Yeah. These referendums are the difficult ones, those that ask us who are we really, and that's what this referendum is. So so the level of vitriol, the level of deep-seated... Uh, hate. hate. Almost hate coming out, uh, emerging, or people feeling this is an opportunity to do that. I, I, am, I am dismayed at it, to say the least. What this is doing, and it's doing what this referendum will actually do. So Michelle Obama uh, at the Democrat convention in 2012 said the US presidency doesn't change who you are, it reveals who you are. This referendum and in the lead up to it, but the outcome of this referendum more than anything else, but I can, maybe the indications are leading here, this referendum won't change who we are as a nation. It will reveal who we are. And even in the lead up to it, are we already seeing the signs of who we are really? And that's what this is going to do. And it's not pleasant viewing, to be honest. It's 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 actually quite distressing viewing. It uh, is, if I have to be honest. And, and you know, you're absolutely right. It reveals who we are. But on top of that, 
it then gives a whole bunch of people license to be who they really are mm. as well. And in some ways that it's good because you can see it out in the open and you can address it. But in other ways, as we are seeing with this debate, it is tremendously traumatic for, for people everywhere. I feel sorry for some of our elders who have spent their life um, as activists, as advocates mm. for their people. This is the last major reform um, and national conversation that they will probably participate in. Mm. And as the polls go down, I, I, I would suggest that it's kind of like a 30% chance that yes, we'll win. Mm. Um, this will be the last major political act of their lifetime. And a lot of those old people are going to leave us, you know, in the not too distant future. I hope that's not the case, but, you know, the law of averages tells us a lot of those people are going to go to the grave broken hearted. Uh, I'm, I'm, si- I'm 60 next year. I'm not going to see another referendum question dealing with these issues uh, in my lifetime. That's just not going to happen. When you think about the Republic referendum, and I still remember seeing Malcolm Turnbull and Peter Fitzsimons with his dreadful red scarfy thing on his head. Oh, we could spend an hour talking that, about that, but we won't. No, but but they 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 were the next day after the Republic referendum lost. They were, oh, we'll be back in five years and da da da. That was just about quarter of a century ago. We were probably more republic, more monarchist now than we were then. Yeah, you don't get to revisit this. This is not going to be resolved again in my lifetime. The bit that really, if I if I go to the core of this, what makes this so, so, so gut wrenching is that if you think of the nineteen sixty seven referendum, that wasn't really about the question of the census and the question of the parliament being able to make laws about it. It was really about if you think about the long the long trope of history to that point yes. and how badly Aboriginal people have been treated. The real questions that Australians had to ask themselves was, do the Aborigines belong in this country? Because remember, this is when our children were being stolen. Terranalius uh, was still alive and well. Well, and we were t- people were still debating whether or not the Aborigines are a dying race. The real questions were, do the Aborigines belong in this country? Are, the par- are they part of the future of this nation? And the country came back and said, yes, they are on both counts. 90% of people said, yes, they belong in this country. And all six states said, yes, they are part of the future of this nation. That bit about the Commonwealth being able to to make laws about us, well, they've done that quite often without asking us. I mean, that's just a, that's a shortcut to it. But they've made lots of laws about us and other things. Sometimes they've asked us, sometimes not. This question is a more fundamental one. Yeah. It's not about acknowledgement of us as first peoples and creation of voice and we'll talk to parliament, executive government and parliament will make the machinery. That's not the real questions. The real questions are, sure, if we said in 67 the Aborigines belong in this country, the real question is, should the Aborigines be able to speak? If we said in 67 they are part of the future of this nation, the real question for every Australian is, should we as a nation, should I as a voter allow the Aborigines to talk about things that are about them? Yes or no? That's what this is about. The level of vitriol that's happening makes me think, are people really saying, no, the Aborigines should not speak? No, they should not be allowed to talk about things that are about them. I just think that the No campaign is doing a really effective job of getting people to think about anything else other oh. than the question that is being put to them. Yeah, and, and that's, that's you know, campaigning for a no thing, and this is easy. They don't have to win this referendum. All they have to do is stop the yes campaign winning. Much easier task. All you've got to do is 
is if this if the if the core questions are those, all you've got to do is throw everything in front of it so people don't get to see the core questions, um, and it doesn't occur to them. That's that, that in all the talks I do, that's the feedback I get from people was, wow, you've made it so clear what this is about, and everything else is just fluff and noise and smoke. Well, um, I'll wrap up the conversation in a minute, but you're getting a lot of love on the text line. Ian, a lot of people thanking you uh, um, thoroughly for your honesty and, and being so um, honest with your story and being vulnerable enough to tell that story. Um, so thank you for everyone that's uh, texting in. Um, I won't mention you all. Ian, before uh, I let you go and we finish here, um, what what's your tip? If you're a betting man, how much... Of a chance, do you think the Yes campaign has of succeeding? The, the polls are not great, and remember, this is a double uh, a double um, benchmark you have to get over. You've got to get all the pop. You've got to get the bulk of the population, and you have to get the bulk of the states. You can get one of those two things and lose. You don't get if you don't. You have to get both of them to win. I have to say, look, I'm Aboriginal. I'm an eternal optimist, but I'm also a pragmatist. Uh, I'm doing my best for this to succeed. And and honestly, Daniel, this is really about every person has to vote with their heart. What do they truly believe is the right thing to vote for? Um, on the 15th of October, as long as people get up, can look themselves in the mirror and say, regardless of the outcome, I voted the way I truly believe and I can look into, look into the mirror and not be ashamed of the person I see, as long as I... That, that for me, is all I can ask of, of every voter. I hope people vote yes, but more importantly, they need to remember those two, those two questions I said and they have to vote with what they truly believe. I guess we both ask people... The most we can ask of people is to apply critical thought to the question yep. at hand. Ian, thank you so much for coming in. Um, we'll have you in again. Um, look after yourself, and I say this to every First Nations person um, I speak to at the moment. Uh, we are living in tumultuous times. We're living in, in many ways, horrible times. Uh, hopefully, once October 14th has passed, it's one way or the other, we'll be able to heal ourselves and, and get back on with our lives. But at the moment, this referendum does seem all-consuming. So take care of yourself. And you too, Daniel, and always a pleasure to come in. Triple R. That's right, as Uncle Charlie, and as with every episode of The Mission, we like to finish with the great man, Charlie Pride, because he means so much to us. Uh, Thank you to Ian for coming in and sharing his story and talking about the times that we live in. Until next week, stay safe, stay strong, and stay listening. Ta-da. It's good to touch the green, green grass of home. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's The Mission, a weekly radio show exploring the issues that impact the lives of Aboriginal people and those at the wrong end of social justice in this country. The Mission is broadcast live on Triple R every Tuesday evening. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website.